Hi, this is Thomas from Quest and Chaos. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and joining us on this chaotic adventure. If you want to listen to our other exciting podcasts, such as Swords and Sages, Chaos Agent, Spelljammer, and many more, please visit our website at questsandchaos.com slash podcasts for links to your favorite podcast platform of choice. Now, if you enjoyed this content and want to support us, please consider joining our Patreon for exclusive content, cast interaction, and more at patreon.com slash chaos. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Untitled Show. I'm thinking of rebranding it. What do you think? Because it's not really a podcast. I Mm. guess. I mean, nobody listens to it. They just watch it. Five people do. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, good. (laughs) Bye. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you for listening to our podcast, everybody. Um, This is also a show that is on YouTube that has a lot of visual information to it. Um, as we discuss Kickstarters and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to even get into the discussion of people say it's a podcast, but it's actually video. And right. I'm like, how is that a podcast that's video? So we may be changing the logo, the name of the show, everything. You're doing it. I'm not doing shit. <laughs> well, welcome to every day of my life. <laughs> All right. So uh, you're wearing... <laughs> Do not make me spit on my computer. <laughs> you are wearing an amazing shirt today. Thank you. Now I can do this because now everybody's seen my shirt. Everybody's I can now put my computer back in front of my face. All right. So it, for those on the podcast, in fact, it is a Dungeons and Dragons yep. T-shirt mm-hmm. of the ampersand. Uh, yeah, and there's a multiple colors and pirates and skeletons. Yep, and and a dragon. Things happening. Okay. Should we uh, just get right into the business at hand? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that we are going to start off with things that we are doing in July. Trying to do as little as possible. <laughs> that was a segue for you to jump into oh. what you were doing in July. So right now I am doing an RPG writer workshop. Um, it's on RPGWriterWorkshop.com. It's pretty self-explanatory. And so it is in the month of July I will have created, and I say this tentatively because I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of work that goes into this that I'm not really 100% committed to. But anyway, it walks you through how to make an RPG in one month. And so there's essentially lessons that you can read online, resources that they give you, and then you're supposed to actually create the content. And it is for a one shot. So it's just a one shot. So you're looking at about 3,000 total written words in order to write. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is currently not, you can't sign up for it now because the registration is closed. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the website has a number of other different programs that look pretty cool. For instance, there's a RPG Marketing 101 which we will be taking at some point. I'm not. Because it's like $19. Okay. Um, but uh, That is something that to be said is that um, it was relatively cheap. I mean, I signed up for the full ball of wax. I think it was 30 bucks in totality. And it's just looking, going through the first week of the course, it's not things that, there are things there that I could have looked up and figured out on my own if I would have been at that point. But I think the $30 was spent so that I do do the things that are there. So it gives you assignments that you should be doing. Um, and so therefore, if you've paid the money, you should be committed to it and therefore mm-hmm. should be completing it. You know, Because in the first week, they talk a little bit about marketing, um, just making your documents accessible, 
Um, what else was in that it's, first week? Uh, where you publish. So do yeah. you use the open game license to yep. publish uh, wherever you want, as long as you follow those rules? Do you, and this specifically for 5e, mm -hmm. um, or actually they actually list a couple of other different sources that are part of the OGL license, mm -hmm. and they have their own system reference document. Or do you go to DMs Guild, which has a very, um, you can use all of the IP or mm -hmm. a lot of the IP from Wizards of the Coast, but uh, they take a large percentage mm -hmm. of every sale. Uh, there are over 4,400 people signed up yeah. For this, so that is a, a massive class. Yeah, and even on the RPG workshop, when I got an email from them, they were just saying that they were not expecting this total number of individuals to actually take class. So it's obviously a huge interest for people to actually write their own stories. Right. And they, um, there's a number of different sort of instructors that are writing content. So I was mm -hmm. looking over your shoulder as you were um, reading through some of the stuff, and I, mm -hmm. and I saw a couple of names on the first. This is just in sort of the first section or two. Mm -hmm. Yep where they've written um, stuff for you to read. They've written curriculum, you, and you read it, and you learn it. Um, Just like I'm saying words for you to listen to. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of them, uh, I don't know who this is, uh, but JVC Perry um, is a writer for Laura Smith and Nord Games, and you, we know both of those companies. You do know that the internet is... Yeah, it's uh, uh, twitter.com slash JVC Perry. Okay. Uh, A-R-R-Y. Oh, sorry. Right there. There we go. Um, okay. You can even misspell it into Google, and it, and it, and it knows who you are. <laughs> also, I bet you it probably because we're reading this off a of Google Doc that Google search actually knows Google yeah, stuff because it all listens. Right. Uh, you know, and so then there is another one of the uh, writers who I think wrote the accessibility. I, I, don't quote me on that if they wrote the accessibility part, but no, it, actually, this person wrote the. Getting started with your living document, which mm -hmm. is the section of here's, you know, for us, it's a Google Doc or it's a Scrivener document where it's your Bible, it's where everything lives, and it's you keep changing and adding and changing and adding. Mm -hmm. And it talks a little bit about formatting in there. And right. so if you're not actually used to writing, uh, if you're not used to screenwriting or writing television scripts or things of that nature or, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. that um, it's probably a great resource because it addresses some of the things like uh, tagging and things like that that typically come with different styles of right. you know, script that you have to write. And the person uh, who wrote that little section about the living document is Ashley Warren, who co-wrote um, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Oh, yeah, that's right. Icewind Dale. I keep wanting to call it Waterdeep Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Really? Uh, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. I just want to call it Icewind Dale. Yeah, Icewind Dale. Okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that's that's going to be fun. That's going to be... Did we have a podcast since we talked about Rhyme, R-I-M-E? I don't know. Probably not. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because also with my misspelling, I spelled Rhyme of, <laughs> rhyme uh, of the Frost Maiden, R-H-Y-M-E, and it, was told it's not a lyrical verse. Yeah. If you did want of to... Of the Frost Maiden. Maiden. You, if you did want to, you could edit this, and then you would uh, know what is in each one of these episodes. Um, so uh, that Again, being said... June is the do-as-little-as-possible month. That being said, we are going to take a quick little advertising break and be right back for This Week in Kickstarter. 
All right, and we're back to talk about this week in Kickstarter. Whoop, is there? Whoop. Is that it? Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Oh, by the way, episode eleven. It was just this now. Yeah. Single ones. Single batons. Okay, what are you gonna do for episode twelve? I don't know if that's twenty-one <laughs> or twelve. I can't. I don't Either know. Either way, we both got it covered. Anyway. <laughs> So the first thing that we're going to talk about is role player adventures, and apparently, my husband backed their first foray. That's me, by the way. In order to make <laughs> money off of it by not actually using it, but selling it farther down. So he was basically a Kickstarter speculator. Well, is this like a retirement plan now, where you're now speculating in Kickstarter just like you do in the stock market? Uh, there, that is a potential lifestyle choice. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that that is a possibility of things that could happen. Okay. Um, for instance, you know, the there's a time between Kickstarter fulfillment and mm -hmm. general availability of games. And sometimes uh, you get a Kickstarter game and you play it and it's not as great as you thought it was going to be. So you sell it in that window. And... Before it actually yes. hits market or if it ever hits market. So therefore you yeah. make, you could potentially make money off of it. So... Um, with role player, mm -hmm. so this is sort of a, a cooperative board game that takes the role player game into an adventure co-op mode. Okay, and what was the role so, player game, the thing that you backed? So role, back? role player, um, the whole game was you building a character, mm -hmm. right? So you had to, um, you would roll dice and you have uh, patterns of rows and columns that you're trying to get based on your attribute scores okay um and you know it the the better unbalanced your character is the better you do okay um but it wasn't and it was something you could do solo something you could just mm -hmm. you know you could do competition wise it wasn't exactly what i was looking for at the time what was what were you looking for because like know. i don't really understand the game piece of it versus i think like that, yeah. i would just want to have a decent like right. role, you know what I mean? Like a like a character roller. Yeah, I, I think that I was looking for something a little bit more fun for solo play. Okay. Um, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't like unlocking things. It was, you know, sort of mechanics mm -hmm. over and over again. So it, so it's kind anyway. of like gambling. In fact, if you could gamble with it, right? Well, much better. Game. Okay. Anyway, so I ended up <laughs> selling my copy of Role Player. However, Role Player Adventures um, is a completely standalone game where you take characters mm -hmm. and you go through a co-op storytelling but it's based on sort of a board game and a book mechanic got right? it so, so there's no dm it's mixing an rpg with a board game itself and i'm assuming the characters are pre-generated in this yes okay. uh, and in fact it says uh it's a cooperative storytelling board mm -hmm. game for one to four players uh set in the world critically acclaimed dice man manipulation game role player and so you've said that you could also yeah. Honestly, they had me right there. They had me at these modules that uh -huh. look like the 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 one e AD and D modules. Oh, okay. I was like immediately when I saw that, I, I got sort of nostalgic, and I'm like, I gotta back this. Okay. Uh, anyway, so and it's co-op, and I like co-op, so I think I'm gonna back this. So, how complicated do you think this actual? story and game is going to be because when i first saw this my initial things were okay so it's a little tainted grail mm -hmm. and it's a little rpg yeah you know what i mean i mean it, it kind of sounds like it and it's a little board game mm -hmm. so it's kind of all all those sort of 
built into one. What I do like about, as opposed to Tainted Grail, because I got other things to say about Tainted Grail, um, each one of these modules is a is a game, right? So mm -hmm. you are uh, you are not continuing on. You're going to play a campaign, and then yep. you're going to start over, and you're going to play another campaign. Yeah, which is uh, very much like an RPG. Yeah. In the fact that you don't really continue on with your RPG, you're like, okay, so we've not defeated Strahd. Later, Barovia. Well, see you around. <laughs> nice. Or it is, oh, we've finished this task. Now we're going to go and um, mm -hmm. spend some time in town recouping everything. At Tainted Grail, there is no recouping anything. It is it is go, go, go. Okay. Um, but uh, so what you can do is you can use the role player mm -hmm. game to make characters for this. Thank you. That was the leading question I asked you about yeah. five questions ago. So anyway, uh, I don't know if that means I'm going to have to go back and buy mm, role player. I don't think so. I mean, is it is there any sort of mechanic in here that's driven by your computer? Because if not, you could literally just make a character. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you definitely could. You know, and I'm assuming this is on standard 5e rules. It's not. No, no, no. Uh, this is on, it's, it's its own rule system. Oh, okay. It is not. It's not part of the 5e system at all. It's, okay. It's 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 again. It's a board game. Mm-hmm. With some RPG elements and some storytelling. Okay. So it looks it's fun. It's co-op. Also, a like hundred dollars though. It's a big commitment. Ooh. You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, don't I'm even going... tell me you back this I, because literally, if you, that sound to me said I back this, and now I'm gonna have to explain to you why I spent a hundred dollars. Uh, I did not back this. Okay. What You're I was. Fine. What Everything's I... fine now. <laughs> well, I would. Kind of like to. Maybe they could send us a copy for us to play. Or yeah. if one of our uh, players backed it. <laughs> Somebody who wasn't us that could come by the studio and play it with us. Yeah, uh, that might be cool too. Anyway. Uh, is there a, um, but while we're in the world of COVID, is there an online gameplay portion to this? Because I, I did not see one. I don't know. That would let you play with other people online. Just like a lot of things are being tested online now currently with gameplay as well as online gameplay. Whoa. Yeah, I know. It gets egregiously expensive Whoa. as you scroll down that page, my friend. Uh -huh. $400. Yep. Mm hmm. Yippity yep. Uh. Told you. That's why I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's talk about how much money. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, one thing that one of the games that we were, that I was thinking of backing, we're going to talk about in a little bit. Should so we just transition to it? I think we should. We should. Let's go for it. Um, anyway, so we uh, wrapping up. Role player. Role player. Uh, I'm not going to back it because I've just been denied. Well, I'm just saying that I would play it as well. It's just a hundred dollars. Is like yeah. it really like we have to have nothing going on in life to right. be like. And here's a hundred dollars. Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, this is a, yeah. I mean, we'd be playing it on the channel, mm -hmm. which is even worse because it's not our our money anymore. It's your money, <laughs> and frankly, that's that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's transition into somebody else buying things for us. Yes, so Ding. so uh, we follow Ezra Denny mm -hmm. on uh, Kickstarter. So whenever he backs something, we get an email. <laughs> Saying, do you um, want to play this? Or so, I think to myself, I might want to play this with you, sir. So, so we got this email for the game Intrepid. So and, right now when we're recording this, there's only four days to go. I've been looking at this game um, for a while but I wasn't too sure exactly like if we wanted to talk about it, how we felt about it, et cetera, et cetera. And then like you said, you got the email that Ezra said we backed it. I was like, great. 
That one hurts to do anything. Guess, guess what? Again, July is turning out to be exactly what I said it would be. Nice. Nothing. Um, so this is a a space. It's so a cooperative game, game which we space. love. Cooperative games, which we love here, uh, or I do, in fact. And in, I agree. We're in space. You're in the spa international space station. I don't. I'm not going to play the video because it's it's pointless. Um, yeah. Other than we talked about when we watched the video earlier, it's the fact that essentially it's probably a relatively inexpensive video to make because it's all free footage from NASA overlaid with like just a simple animation and voiceover. So I'm like, mm, I could have probably done this in my spare time. It's not too tough, especially if there was a template for that yeah. like circle and then you just, eh, whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it also doesn't tell you what the game's about. Not at all. Um, cool again, imagery. I mean, that, 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 that's cool. I like but that. But I bet you that's probably from the instruction manual, so I well, bet you that's art already made. But they had to make, they had to create that, or they had to commission or create that art. Mm -hmm. It looks awesome. This game actually looks like a lot of fun. Um, from what I hear, it is a very difficult game. Really? Yeah, so back to the, well, you're on a space station and there are meteors and everything trying to destroy you. But it's also a resource management game. So you're working with your fellow astronauts or cosmonauts mm -hmm. or wherever country you choose to be from um, in order to basically not die on the space station. Right. Uh, and hopefully someday our uh, our reviews are as important as Rados. Uh, he loves this game. Uh, he's uh, he's also big into the co-op games. That's sort of his big mm -hmm. thing that he likes to do. And he's a great YouTuber uh, and reviewer. But uh, I love this game. I could have come up with some, something different <laughs> than that. Really? Yeah. This game smells it's like... It's a spectacular... This game smells like... <laughs> no, that's... That's bizarre. weird. I was going to say this, this game smells like... Never mind, fresh cookies, but whatever. Fresh baked cookies. <laughs> I can tell you for in a fact that at least places that I have been in China, it does not smell like fresh cookies. I was talking about cookies. Okay. It has nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> I was just thinking about cookies. Like, anyway. honestly, while you're talking about this thing, I'm literally thinking about Korean barbecue and cookies and maybe a cake. We have none of those things. I know. House. That's why I've been like, that's like sort of the back, <laughs> like that's the back hamster wheel. Okay. The front hamster wheel is this. <laughs> the back hamster wheel is right now thinking about all that stuff. Um, this is a game so where. speed it up, son. This is a game where I almost backed this morning um, because it is $60. Ezra's already getting it. Well, that was. Why spend more money? Exactly. I was like, guys, I was about to back and I said, wait a minute. This came up because, oh yeah, Ezra already backed it. We don't have to. Full circle. Done and Full done. Circle. Anyway, uh, I hope to be playing this game, Ezra's copy of it, on the channel <laughs> um, with Ezra. Uh, all these things are unlocked. This is these are great. Again, every time we do one of these shows, I want to develop a Kickstarter board game because they bring in a lot of money. Yeah, but if you think about what goes out, what's spent, I mean... I mean, yeah, I mean, just looking at the artwork, yeah. at the production, And knowing you know. how much that all of those people have to make in order to do that and how many meetings it takes in order to get something right at yeah. that point. Um, what I like about this Kickstarter, too, is that there's only a single... There's only two pledges, support me and $60. Yeah. That's it. So it's not like I have 100 levels of whatever, and maybe that's just me, but I'm feeling more... The fact that it's like, just give me a dollar amount, and if that dollar amount feels like what I should be spending for the thing I'm getting, then I'll go ahead and back it if I'm interested in it. If you're giving me levels of like 100, 200, 300, 500, I'm like, 
too much too much going yeah, on in my head. Especially because it's like I want all of those things. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if I'm backing this, I want to make sure that I get the whole package. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend four hundred dollars though. Yep. And so I think this is something that we talked about. I forgot with which person because again, I don't edit these podcasts, mm -hmm. but it's about unlocking. Oh. It was in our Mark. extended conversation with Mark, just about unlocking some of the additional right. things on your Kickstarter, um, and that people want to feel like they're getting something as well as participating in the making of something. Yeah. So I, again, I like the fact that for 60 bucks, all of these little things have been unlocked and are now available to you. I mean, to me, when I get my notification that says, you're not only getting the one thing you originally backed that you thought yeah. was a good value and that you're going to enjoy, but you're getting all these other little extras. To me, that makes me super excited. Yeah, so. and it's also not unlocking things that you can buy later. It's unlocking mm -hmm. things that you are going to get. Mm -hmm. um, so that is actually, yes. that influences uh, our Kickstarter that we're going to be launching at some point. You keep saying that. like I know, and then I keep getting No work, work July. All right, so. Uh, Ooh, one quick other thing too is that I looked at all of the people who created this, and actually, one of them actually does work at NASA. So it might actually be a legit space talk in there. Every time you say NASA, I think you put a U in it. Well, it, yeah, I don't know. NASA? NASA? That's a, that's a, that's a. Is that how you say it? How do you say it? NASA. Is, NASA. Oh my God. NASA? Okay, I'm no, done. NASA. It's a, a city in Wisconsin. <laughs> it's right. also, isn't it an island? Maybe. All right, we are going to jump in. <gasps> Speaking of islands. More space. More space and dolphins. Ooh, so yeah. So this, uh, this is Houston, we have a dolph dolphin. <laughs> Houston, we have a Dolph Lundgren is the sequel to this. We have dolphin. Um, this is uh, the next game from Hyber, <coughs> which made uh, Soviet Kitchen Unleashed. Yeah, that was a fun game. Fun game. Uh, we were in... France. France, playing the game with mm -hmm. French cards, mm -hmm. trying to use Google Translate, except for it the cards. It wasn't that hard. I mean, it wasn't, because you don't actually have to know what the they say. You just yeah. kind of have to look at the color. It's Essentially, it's, yeah, yeah. it's but, a matching game. But the, but the words were in French, mm -hmm. and but the letters were fake Soviet yeah, fake characters, so, so fake they were like backwards. Letters. So Google Translate was like, it's almost this word. <laughs> There's random things. And when in the Thomas middle. says Google Translate, he means he's going to take a picture of it as opposed to typing it in. Mm -hmm. It's not like you would actually type the word in. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so to get more lazy. Uh, Houston, we have a dolphin. We uh, plan on playing that on this very channel yep, very as soon, soon as the copy comes to the U.S. Yes, we have a prototype version in the international mail, which is mm -hmm. taking a little bit longer than we had anticipated, uh, but we hope to get it in very soon and get that game played. Yep. Uh, this, uh, do you want to talk about what this game is? Um, in a second, I just want to say that we are fans of Hyper Games just because of Soviet Kinship Unleashed. We think that, or at least I personally think that they are simple games that have enough interest and enough complexity within the game to keep you wanting to play it more so that every time you play, it's a little bit different. Um, there is kind of that a little addictive element to it, um, as well as you know wanting to win or wanting to do better every single time. Mm -hmm. And then also the duration of the game is not gonna be burning you out. So right. I think that you can play a lot, um, some of, you know, like Soviet Kitchen Unleashed, what we played in like a half hour, we played like three rounds or yeah. something. So it's like, yeah. let's do it again, let's do it again. So that kind of keeps, you know what I mean? You keep putting the coin in the, in the you know, <laughs> in the arcade game. Exactly, to keep uh, you going. Um, and, the, and they're also, they utilize either a smartphone or a tablet mm -hmm. uh, with, with a camera for both of those games uh, that 
is part of the gameplay, mm -hmm. right? So in Soviet Kitchen Unleashed, you are trying to make a specific color. And each of you has uh, cards that only you can see of different shades of yeah, and the gross colors things. like barf brown or something. Yeah, yeah. You know? so so you're but you know all all colors combined make brown eventually. But so you're trying to make like a blue, and you say, well, I've got a uh, I've got a yellowish card, mm -hmm. right? You know, you can't say I have this card, but you say it's kind of yellow or mustard maybe, yeah. and then somebody else is like, oh, I have a tire that's purple. So then you put, you know, like, like the banana like, and the tire together and you get your eh, close to your color. Exactly. And you're supposed to make something in this kitchen. Yeah. Like and the a, Like from a tire and a banana. And the app has that exactly. intelligence built in to sort mm -hmm. of combine those colors mm -hmm. and, and combine three or four or five different colors. Um, so it is definitely a fun game. It's simple, but it just, it keeps yeah. you kind of wanting to, like I said, just put that coin in the arcade. Yeah. So anyway, Houston, we have a dolphin takes place in 1978, I think it was, <laughs> where apparently the Earth blows up, so you you and your crew get on a spaceship, and apparently um, out from the floppy drive while the captain is checking it <laughs> one day comes a bunch of fish, and the captain's hold on, like... Hold on, talk to that one over there. What? The, that's the fact that you're, that's well, your spaceship yeah. and that you're floating through, and that the captain who smokes <laughs> bubbles out of his pipe, just like I did as a child. Yeah. Anyway, so then he hits the floppy drive, and there's like... Tuna fish or something that come out, sardines. sardines that come out of the floppy drive <laughs> with the floppy disk, and the captain's like, Houston, we have a dolphin. Um, so apparently, the dolphin is essentially the traitor on your ship. Right, and you and don't so, know who the dolphin is. But the goal of the ship is, or the goal is the fact that your ship is stalled and that you need to fix your ship. And so, therefore, the ship is four compartments essentially, and so you need to fix the ship and like release one of the cargo compartments. And so you have to do that three times. And so in order to do that, you need to send out two engineers and a hero astronaut. And so the mechanic is the fact that the hero astronaut goes inside the, com the compartment. And again, I'm getting way too story driven for what this actually is, um, because they're the hero who will be launched into space. So um, they're the ones who have to release the mechanism. And then the two engineers outside the spaceship um, have to release it. And then the captain says, release it. And mm -hmm. that's if everything goes well. And so you, so each, so in order to fix something, you each have like cards that mm -hmm. allow you to fix and, yep. and you, and you play them. You have astronauts. Okay. Your, your cards yeah. are your astronauts, and, and you, you play them with like your phone or whatever the device mm -hmm. is. So essentially, your device is sit down or laid down on the board, and then the cards go around it. And so, three people can play only at once, but it's up to five players. Um, and so everybody has to put face down, put their mm -hmm. astronaut into a position, and hopefully the, yeah. fix and so the, the phone ship. reads who it is, mm -hmm. and then you set it down, and then it, the phone is going to tell you what happened, right? Because one of those people might be a dolphin. And the dolphin is the traitor. The dolphin actually wants to flood every compartment and obviously swim around and kill all the astronauts. <laughs> uh, so, so it definitely, it's, I don't know, I, I can't wait to play it. Uh, I kind of wish that it was here already. Mm -hmm. um, this looks like a really fun game. I love the, you know, it's got similar artwork to Soviet Kitchen Unleashed. Yep. I like it's it. a little character-ish. Um, there's a dog and a monkey. Because oh, yeah. you can't go into space without a dog and a monkey. Uh, what's so special about the dog? Well, you can't kill it as a human because dogs are cute. <laughs> it says that in the rule book. Yeah, exactly. Right? That is exactly the rules. Um, and the, that's also the thing I like about this. The rules are four pages. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not really hard to get the rules wrong. Um, but I think a lot of it is dependent upon the app, and so the app should be probably telling you 
um, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And so what the app does is actually tells you um, the astronaut, you know, has been launched into the void or, you know what I mean, something like that. And so you have to figure out, did we actually successfully, like, are we actually able to successfully uncouple the cargo hold or did the dolphin kill the astronaut and send him into the void? And so you can, you know, there's a little bit of the, the mystery in there as far as figuring mm -hmm. out who's actually the traitor in the group. And there's panic. There's a whole panic element as mm -hmm. well. Um, yeah, where you can overrule the captain because the captain is the one who basically decides to release the cargo hold or to flood the cargo hold. And so, therefore, if you disagree with the captain's choice, you can actually overtake the uh, the captain's position by, you know, by basically voting him down by enough having enough panic tokens. And, and I believe the captain can also be a dolphin. Yes. So, I mean, it's... You know, it can get it can get a little slippery in there. <laughs> I was gonna say Harry, but that would be a no. different joke. That was only for those dogs and monkeys. Yes. All right. Uh, so this is this looks this looks awesome. It has just been launched. Twenty three mm -hmm. days to go. Yep. Um, I we should definitely push this one over the hundred grand. Uh, so. Okay. Not us personally, because you know we're not gonna spend that money. Yeah, I don't have that kind of money uh, anyway. Plus, they sent us the game, so we get to play. Um, mm -hmm. Um, although there are some cool stretch goals and things, so it might be worth backing to get some of those. Anyways, so All right, should we go so on to the we last We are going to uh, go on to, piece. oh my gosh, dice. Mm -hmm. More dice. As per usual. Usually I get very excited about dice, and I actually received an email, I think, last week. Um, so let's talk about what this is. This is Wild Earth Dice Collection Discover Hidden Treasures. Mm hmm. And this is by Paintings Wow. Um, they. they, they what? Nothing. They did a Kickstarter that I supported probably last year with little pins. The pins were big. The pins were fun. It definitely had its own graphic style. Um, so like I said, when I received this email, I was like, oh, so Paintings Wow is now doing dice. Interesting. Let mm -hmm. me take a look. And so... These are the Sharp Edge dice, mm -hmm. which is sort of the new fad at the moment, which, hey, anything, as long as it's not metal dice. Really? Yeah. See, I'm not too sure what the point of the sharp edge dice is. I have a set of sharp edge dice okay. from 1988. Okay. Um, they are so sharp. The D8. I, what I would do is actually, I would when I'm introducing people to Dungeons and Dragons, I say, grab this D8 between your hands and rub it, and it hurts. It is like painful. I don't know why. Uh, anyway, they're uh, a disgusting brown color. These look pretty. Why would I not back these? So, but you didn't answer my question. Why sharp edge? Like, why do I care? Like, it's gonna roll. It's the new fad. Okay. It's the current new fad. Okay. I mean, you're right, they do look fantastic. Um, my big issue here is the fact that, again, it's in pounds um, and it's 46 of them for one set. That's a lot. My math is not great, but I'm suspecting that that's gonna be 50 bucks and then probably to get 50. anything here from the UK is gonna probably be about another 11 US dollars. So you're probably looking at 65-ish dollars in order to like get a set of sharp edge dice. Um, pretty yes, but holy smokes. $58. Is that how much US is? Yeah, do they all come with a... Yes, you do get a little box. But you could send them to me in a regular box. Like, I keep all my dice in a bag. So, and I think most people that I play with who have more than a set of dice, unless the dice are very special, 
um, like those little itty bitty metal dice that are probably lost already that you bought me. They're, they're over there. Okay, they're not lost apparently. Um, I was keeping them in a box so that I wouldn't lose them, but too late, I've lost them. Anyway, so mm, again, beautiful dice, but I can't spend the money. $58 on a set of dice, you exactly. know, that's half of a board game. Yeah, that is. Exactly. So, I don't know. I think I'm going to pass on this one. It is beautiful, though, and I do enjoy Paintings Wow. I did, um, you know, and their previous Kickstarters, they're definitely enthusiastic. They will reach back out to you. Um, you know, they're definitely part of the community and interested in being part of the community and are active on Twitter. And um, if scroll up once, Thomas, um, if you're watching this on the video podcast, the pin that you see there as part of some of their rewards, that's that's kind of the style of artwork that they go with. You know, right. just as a general company, I have a barbarian pin that has that style with some axes on it. Yeah, so this is one thing that does annoy me about some Kickstarters mm. is the day one backer mm -hmm. specials. Not everybody is going to be able to back day one. This and, is true. You know, In fact, I got probably got the email for day one backer, and I couldn't look at I was just so busy, I couldn't look at the email until like four days later. Yeah, so I, I, I am I not a... But I you could probably buy the pin after the fact. I, I don't know. I'm not... Uh, so Tainted Grail had a day one backer. I, don't, mm -hmm. I didn't even know about Tainted Grail when it came out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not fully up to verse. But once I heard about it, I wanted to back it. But then I was missing out on a full extra character. Mm-hmm. That's annoying and stupid, and I, I'm not a fan of day one. Okay, this so. is a pin. Let's calm down. Whatever. We're not gonna back <laughs> this. We're not gonna back this anyways, and it doesn't matter because this is but way too expensive. If you do, I'm just saying I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw you out of my table. I'd say these are definitely very pretty dice. The case is beautiful. Yeah. I just can't afford that kind of money for a pair of dice, especially when they, you know, especially if you're gonna roll some crap. You're gonna roll some crap numbers for me. I'm gonna put you in dice jail. Oh yeah, if you spent, oh imagine spending $58 on a set of dice and they roll like, and they just roll terrible. Cause, cause these dice are not gonna be guaranteed to roll perfect, right? Any sort of translucent die is not perfectly balanced. It's just, it's not possible. So yeah, you could get a shitty die and just, you'll never use it because <laughs> it, it rolls be, like or ass. Or it could be me and my luck is terrible. So therefore it's all the same thing. Ah, you need to switch dice. All right, so with that being said, uh, don't play Dungeons & Dragons with Birds of Paradise. Play Call of Cthulhu no, with Birds of Paradise. Yes, you absolutely <laughs> should. Birds of Paradise, I do have to say, shameless plug, um, our GM was using it to basically kill us, and then I was like, you know what? I think we have a set laying around the studio. I'll just double down, and it worked. It worked. Yeah. It um, was it was low low dice for low dice, just one after the other. Also, check the description down below. Uh, you can get Arizona-themed uh, Birds of Paradise right now. It doesn't matter. For Cthulhu, they're the best dice ever. And Just any, any pair. There's a referral link down in the comments below. Okay. Are we kicking it to... Let's take a break. All right. We're going to take an ad break. And then we're going to come back and who, who are we going to be talking to? I'm not going to say his name because I mess ever Rob his name Rob Davio. That was close. That was very close. You were teetering on the edge of mispronunciation. Uh, Davio of Legacy fame. He is generally regarded as the inventor of the Legacy mechanic. 
um, starting with Risk Legacy, mm -hmm. a game that he developed when he was at Hasbro. And then obviously there were some other games, Seafall, he helped with Matt Leacock and made Pandemic Legacy, which is our my personal mm -hmm. favorite game. Season one is my favorite game. Mm -hmm. Kind of want to play season two again, even though I've played it two, one and a half times already. We could just start from the beginning. I'm definitely going, well, we have half a game at home. Okay. I am definitely going to play December again, as soon as this quarantine is, as soon as this actual pandemic is over. We're going to we play get, pandemic for real. We can get back to playing pandemic. Yep. Uh, so when did we take the commercial break? Before or now? Right before we go to Rob. So as soon as we're done talking, we'll go to commercial break. Oh, fine. Okay. All right, we are going to welcome Rob Davio here to the Untitled Podcast. Welcome. How are you doing? Hanging in there. I wish I could. I wish I could say I was great, but in 2020, I don't be like, "Good, nice to see you." I'm just like, uh, "Yeah, yeah, For, still here, yep, still here." Haircut situation. <laughs> uh, just my wife just cut my hair in the backyard like an hour ago. So congratulations. Tur turns out she actually is pretty good at it. But she, I'm not surprised. She does a ton of arts and crafts and production and skills and cake decorating. So she like watched two YouTube videos, goes, I get it. And then it's been giving me haircuts. Does awesome. she also read murder novels? Uh, she does not. Why? Okay. I'm just saying is that if she's a quick learner and she'd be like, oh yeah, I get it. And then just is looking <laughs> at you like this over the novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, she'd be, no, she'd do a poison. It'll be fine. But, but we get along great. So I'm not worried. All right. Excellent. So, I mean, I have no idea where to start. I mean, because there is so much. Um, I think for kind of a, a background about us is we love doing co-op games. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, all of our games that we start with are legacy games on top of that. So mm -hmm. okay. Pandemic Legacy, we played that before we played Pandemic. Um, really? Okay. Yes. Betrayal Legacy, we played that before we played Betrayal. Betrayal mm -hmm. on House on the Hill. Um, so that's kind of an interesting, um, I think, place to start. What are, What are your thoughts on start? You know, starting with legacy games versus starting with just traditional board games? Well, it's the road less traveled. Um, but you do a lot of role playing games, right? So, so you're used to looking at a big chunky rule book and digesting it and figuring out and going back. And if you're doing that, we tried to write the legacy games knowing that you um, may not have played the original game, but we kind of assume when designing that, well, someone at the table has probably played the original game at least once and can kind of give some framework, um, but it should work. And in the case of something like Betrayal Legacy, the rules are um, a different enough that you may have done better because you're not playing how you're used to you're playing how you should like the action system kind of cleaned up some of the timing that was in regular betrayal and it reduced the card count and supposed saying once per turn before you do this or one we just made it like action so you might have been better off by not having to unlearn things before you learn things hmm Better off not knowing things. <laughs> that's, that's, that feels that like could, our motto. Yeah, that could be the motto. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do very well with that. So, not, not my style. There are a lot of interviews, or at least a few great interviews out there. Um, actually, I listened to the Ludology podcast last week with Yuan, which was an interesting sort of time capsule, period, because it was after Risk Legacy, you were talking about Seafall. I don't... You didn't mention Pandemic Legacy at all in that interview. 
um, and then thinking about so probably be 20 14, 13, 14, yeah, yeah. But I thought that was interesting. So for me, listening to it, knowing sort of things that came afterwards, um, it was an interesting, uh, I don't know. I don't know why it was so interesting. I think partly because I, it was, you know, talking about Seafall and what it would do. And, and in there, you even talk about, oh, I just gave you advice, but I'm doing something different in Seafall. Right. Which was an interesting thing to yeah i mean that that was i came out of hasbro in 2012 and risk legacy had been just this great last thing i had done in hasbro but i'd been there 14 years and i really expected to be in the mass market game industry and at that time i was trying to go to new york toy fair and pitch ideas to mattel and hasbro and spin master and do these casual games and license games i was consulting a lot including back to hasbro and uh, I was really trying to do something big and meaty, which was Seafall. Like, oh, how do I take this risk game, you know, which is confrontational and fighting and armies and world maps and do something a little different. But you were, that podcast is a guy going, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Like for the first time in 14 years, I have no idea how to run my own business. I have no idea what type of projects to do. I have no idea how to promote myself. I mean, I was trying and I was working towards it. Um, and And then by... 2015 or 2016 my life had gone in a different way like pandemic legacy had come out i was doing more co-op games uh seafall came out in 2016 and didn't do well 20 pandemic came out in 2015 and did do well i had stopped designing for uh, mass market companies i had stopped consulting and just was doing um, mostly legacy games but not entire legacy games for the hobby market and that's the one thing i've learned about working for myself and running my own business or various businesses is I always have a plan. And then a year later, I have a new plan, right? Like you have to both be trying to get somewhere and then you get new data or something works or you reach that point and you say, now what? And so, um, you know, restoration games, I started spinning up that company in 2017, you know, right in the middle of the, of everything else that was going on. And that was a big decision too. Like, okay, I've got some success right now. How do I, do I really want to stop and become a publisher at the same time I'm becoming a designer? So actually that brings up a great question when you talk about changing plans mid, you know, you find new, new developments, et cetera, et cetera. And then you change your plan. What was, um, what's game development like at Hasbro? Like I'm assuming just like any large corporation, it's very structured. You have to go through checks and, you know what I mean? There are checks throughout the process. You have a project manager, you know, there's a lot of structure as far as like calendars and budget and deadlines. Um, when you came out of that, like, was that kind of the world that you knew as far as process goes? And then when you talk about the transition, was that kind of where you still were when you were developing new games? Were you kind of in that thought process? And then how did that trend, like, how did you evolve or devolve out of that? Well, first I devolved and then I evolved back. It's interesting. Yes. Hasbro is a corporation. It's a publicly held corporation. I can't speak as to how it works now, so I can talk about how it worked from 98 to 2012. So basically the first decade of the century, the aughts. Um, a lot of structure, a lot of checkpoints, a lot of budgets, a lot of profitability checks, a lot of marketing driven decisions, a lot of what are we doing, you know, redirects and things you would expect from a large corporation, some of which I agreed with, many of which I didn't because I was the advocate for the kid in the game, not the marketing and the profit. You know, I mean, I, I was responsible for profit, but I'm like, come on, but this is so good. This is a fun game. They're like, Title doesn't work. I'm like, title's great. It's an inside joke. So like, no, it's not. Oh, okay. Um, 
And I was very much in my thirties and I was very much, and I'd come from advertising. So I was the creative who was going to change the world with my creative ideas and stuff like that. And I don't know if I'm not good for corporations or not good for the way Hasbro did corporations, but it was always a bit of a, like trying to, um, uh, like fight the system. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so how I, much did you, how much did you actually feel like you won there? Was it a win loss sum? Like, you know what I mean? Kind of talk about that perspective. Cause I know a lot of creatives and working in a structured environment, like at the end of the day, somebody has to pay the bills and therefore you're always beholden to that person. Like, how did you manage to that? What am I going to give up versus uh, poor, what am I going to really fight for? I, I did it poorly, quite honestly, because basically when there's corporate politics, you can say like, I don't want to play that. That's a BS game, right? Let's just do the best idea, but it's going to exist. You get a group of people, 20, 30, 50, 100 people, you're going to have checkpoints and organization and hierarchy. And just that's just the nature of group dynamics. So first I was like, this game is dumb. The game of like work the system in your advantage. So I'm not playing. Well, what that really meant was I was playing poorly, right? You can't opt out of the game of politics in a place you work because you don't like the fact that there's politics. It just meant I wasn't sitting on the sidelines, man. I wasn't working the system, building capital, doing what I was supposed to do. By the time I realized that I had was too little, too late. People had made decisions like he doesn't listen or he's rash. Now, that wasn't to say I was going around like lighting things on fire and not doing you know what I was supposed to. But looking back now at age 50, I could tell myself at 28, like, look, this is just part of what you you signed up for. You get 401k matching, you get healthcare, you get vacations. It's a corporation. So learn to learn the system and learn to work within the system, make work your advantage. And the one thing I really did was um, risk legacy. Like at the end, I had worked the system and I figured out like, here's how I get this idea really like through this system by calling in favors or doing this or twisting an arm here or doing that, which all sounds very Machiavellian, but it's just like when you want to ask your parents when you're a kid to like, Hey, I got an idea of how I can actually, you know, and you're trying to like connive something like, it's just how things get done. So when you came out of Hasbro, then um, taking some of that, taking that knowledge with you and taking that sort of like structure with you, then what happened? What happened there when you said you devolved and evolved? Uh, I devolved because I was like, finally, I can just be a creative. Well, I was running my own business and I wasn't focused as much on deadlines. I wasn't focused as much on self-editing. I think that's part of the things that people see in Seafall is it needed like someone to, and me now would go back and be like, let's edit a few things out here. Like you got too many ideas, but I didn't have someone else going, you have too many ideas. I didn't have someone else saying, this is too big. I didn't have someone else saying, you're taking too long with it. Just make a decision. I was like, finally, I get to to write my novel, right? Like, you know, like someone and, and not the discipline to be like, okay, if I don't get to here by this date, then either I need a new idea or I need to put it to the side or I need to speed up, right? I was like waiting for inspiration to strike, um, which is fine if making a game isn't your only source of income, right? And then if, if you're doing something creatively for your own source of income, you need to put some discipline in place and... So when I say devolved, I just got a little bit like, I'm going to kind of do what I want. And I, and it wasn't, it wasn't in everything. Like I was very focused on how much money am I bringing in for a company? What do I have to do for consulting, projecting revenue? But in some ways I got a little bit like, I don't have any structure anymore. Let's see what that goes like. And then every year since then, I put more and more structure back 
some of which I've picked up from Hasbro. I find myself saying, oh man, that thing I used to hate, there was a good point there. I still don't like some of the way they did it, but yeah, like checking profitability at this stage in the prof process is much better than when I've been checking because I've been checking it too late. And then you sort of are emotionally committed or you've spent money on illustration and you're like, oh, how do we get some of our money back? Because we invested more before we realized that our forecasting wasn't good. So at restoration, we sort of pulled that back up and it's a softer checkpoint. Like we don't have all the routine of a large corporation of you're going to go through here and this is what paperwork you have to do. But I'm starting to go, eh, yeah, before we take that next step and hire this illustrator and do this and get sculpts, can we just run some numbers and then we don't have a system for running numbers. Okay, let's make a spreadsheet and let's look at all of this and sort of putting those things in place around it is letting us make uh, better games that make more money faster than just let's make a bunch of fun stuff and see where the money shakes out, which sounds cool. But in most cases, the answer is we didn't make any money. Do you, is that, is, is that why um, you, you know, restoration or other companies would use Kickstarter versus, um, you know, developing it internally and then releasing it? Well, Kickstarter is like probably a whole show in and of itself. And there's different people use it in different ways and it's, I've used it in different ways and it's evolved. I mean, to some extent, you can use it as venture capital, right? You're a small company. You got to do a print run. You don't know how many to print. You need the money to finish the art and do all of this. And it could be, you know, $80,000. And if you guess wrong and no one wants it, that's a lot of money. You know, I think most people are not like, eh, it's only 80K, whatever, right? I mean, there's very few, and they're not making games. Those people who have that kind of money. Uh, so it, Kickstarter can be a way to check to see how many people are interested and then to get that money up front so that you know, like, okay, I have this money to pay it. Um, you face problems after where you're like, great, 20,000 people wanted it. That's far higher than I thought. Let's run some numbers and, oh, I'm losing money now because this scaled and that scaled and we didn't think of this and we put these bonuses in and these extras and suddenly it's not profitable anymore. What do we do? Um, some people do it as marketing and promotion, like Simon doesn't really probably need the capital, but it, it's the type of thing. It's like, it's a big promotion. It's a big splash. They're allowed to put extra stuff into sort of the, the backer kit because you're selling direct to consumer. So there's not as many markups along the way. So there's a couple of different reasons why people use it. So with Return to Dark Tower, um, that was the Kickstarter. Um, was that mostly because there's so much cost involved in actually building electronics and apps and all the other yeah it's 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 over a million dollars for the development budget of that uh wait the development budget million maybe not maybe with, with production I, I don't have that at my fingertips but we're paying basically almost a full year of a tower designer we have a consultant in hong kong who's working with the factory we've got an electronics engineer three illustrators, two graphic designers, three game designers. Um, like this is just a lot of overhead to get all of this. To, uh, we got a programming house in Iceland and, you know, and we're going to be doing some sound design. Uh, we have a UI expert. Um, so there's just a lot of, of people and it's just not the type of thing that our company was just like, oh, we've got million dollars lying around third year of a company of course we've got a war chest like that well and not only that too is you think about just the number of people that you're bringing on um you know who did project like who did project development for that or who did project planning for that? suzanne sheldon works for restoration she does our marketing and sort of our project management but also 
Timberell Sayward, who is designing the tower, and he worked on Beasts of Balance, and he's over in London. He is managing, um, he is basically managing the project in terms of everything going in the box that isn't gameplay. So engineering, lights, manufacturing, sound, speaker, tooling, all of those sorts of things. Uh, I am managing the creative portion of it. How does it play? How do all these pieces come together? including like the program, the, the app and how that works with it. And then Suzanne sort of overseeing all of that. So you even get hierarchy in something that is accompanied with six part-time, six few part-time, full, full-time people. Yeah, absolutely. And how much, how much was sort of, I guess, designed and, and ready to go when you launched the Kickstarter? Was it still um, just a prototype and... Well, th this, this was a tricky one, right? This is the biggest project I've ever done and hopefully the biggest project I ever do in terms of size and scope of people and things that are going on. Um, Kickstarter is interesting. If you're done, people are like, well, what are the stretch goals? They want to feel like investors. They want to feel like they, they bought a, a, a seat at the table. Some people don't care, but many people are like, I want to know, like, I have an opinion or can you do this and feel like it's not done and they're helping finish it. So if you show up like, it's done, we just have to press print. There's a number of people like, just make it, I'll buy it. Like, you're just a pre-order system. You're not a creative endeavor. You do too little, a lot of people are like, I'm, I'm not spending that much money. You don't have your act together. Like, how do I know you're really gonna make it? How do I know it's gonna work, as you say? So you have to kind of get up to this point where you have a, a proof of concept and a rough cost, and you know the direction you're going. But based on how much money you get and what some people are saying, you still have room to sort of pivot and do things. And in the case of this, we had 12 months of development to do where we had to pay people. So we were at a point where like, well, we probably can't just pay people for another year anyway. So we picked what turned out to be fortuitous timing of the beginning of January to run this Kickstarter. And then we've all been in quarantine, like globally, we've been working on our various projects we meet twice a week as a larger team and we have a Slack channel to talk about things and smaller portions meet and we're going around and around and we have some early towers now we have an early build of the app and finally this week we we're starting to get stuff like I think the electronic engineer was saying well I'm, I'm basically wrapping up I mean I'll be on call but I got this ring working in that and stop the speaker from having static from the LEDs and the sounds all working and I'm like, oh, things are now moving into done, which is a nice feeling. Um, and now that we have a real app and now that we have a real tower, none of us can get together to play it. So we still have to play it over a tabletop simulator. And we're trying to figure out like, okay, it's still taking a little long. Is this tabletop simulator with an app on a shared screen or is this really what's happening? And right, we it's, it's a big challenge to try to play test games these days because you're like, People are missing this rule. And it's like, yeah, you, you, it's hard to see this rule because you can't see this deck of cards and the board and your hand at the same time where you could in the real world. So many game designers, myself included, with more complex games are flying blind over usability. Got it. And in fact, tell. that brings up a great question about playtesting because yeah. we were talking about, you know, has Tabletop Simulator made it easier or harder? Obviously, it doesn't sound like it's that much easier. It sounds like it's actually kind of harder. Uh, um, sorry, go ahead. I oh, to do. no, if you have a thought about that, but also like, do you think going forward, Tabletop Simulator could actually be something that you would on, on less complex games use in the future? Like, you know, what was 
what was playtest before? What do you think playtest is going to be in the future? Uh, I, I actually think tabletop simulator is largely a net positive. Um, I still struggle with some of the decisions they put in there. Like there's too much physics, right? Like it's too much physics for me. It's like, I, I wanted to sometimes act more like a game where I put a card and it just goes in the discard pile. It doesn't half fall off and then roll over and knock over a piece. I'm like, I can do that in the real world. Right. But I, I actually, I would rarely do that in the real world. Um, but we're a virtual company. My wife and I work together. We're in the same place. We used to have weekly game groups. So one of the things that I've uh, found a really hard to replace since leaving Hasbro is regular, predictable, anytime play testing. At Hasbro, you be like, I got a game. Anyone can play. And you kind of shout up and walk around. You could always find three or four people who could spare half an hour just to try something. And in many cases, I might have an idea and something ready to play. And it might be two weeks before I can get a group in the evenings and they've got kids and I'm working or I'm business travel before you can get it to the table. So it's really slowed down the design process. So Tabletop Simulator has sped that back up. And in the case of something like Unmatched, which is our line of battling card games for restoration, it, it makes play testing real fast because it's a deck of cards. you got a hand of cards. We're testing new decks. It takes almost no time to build and update them. It's a dream when you get Return to Dark Tower, where you've got a tower, but you're not really looking at the tower. You're looking at a separate monitor, which has an app, which has a virtual tower, and it's got a market over here and a market over there. And then you've got a board with your pieces in it. And it's like a lot of different cameras. And I don't quite use it enough to be able to like switch cameras and be like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and I notice other people are like that as well. They're like, oh, right, there's treasures in the treasure market. What are those? Hold on, let me drive over. Uh-huh, uh, you can't just be like waiting for your turn and go, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that on my turn, right? Every turn requires moving. So some games, it slows it down and I'm not sure what can be done about that. I mean, I guess the more I use it or people use it, the faster we'll get this other, in, this new interface. But overall, it allows us to, iterate things much quicker. Got it. And the people that you play test with, is it consistently the same group? And if you were to give advice to somebody who, you know, who either wants to be a play tester or somebody who has a game that wants play testers, what do you look for in a play tester? You know, what kind of personalities, what, you know, what kind of thought process, like think about who those people are at the table and what they bring for you. If you want to be a play tester, especially for restoration, you can just sign up to be one. And then like, you can see our process. We're always looking for new people. We have a couple hundred on the list and we're sending some stuff out. Um, mostly just dependability. It's like anything else in business. Uh, the world's tough right now. People have commitments. You say you're going to sign up for something and, and you're not getting paid. I recognize you're not getting paid. It's a sort of a chance to see behind the scenes and, and, and have a say. Um, so there's no obligation. And um, if people don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. But we will ask 20 people to be a play tester knowing 18 will say, yeah, and seven will respond. Yep. It's like casting a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, we really needed more data. Should we have done 40? But then people are going to get tired of being asked. So if, if you like, basically people who say, I'm going to do it, and then they do it, and we try to give them a form, Those that's just like the most wonderful thing. And as long as you just give like your honest thoughts, like, that's fine. You don't have to solve our problems. I mean, sometimes people have ideas that are like, oh, no, you're, you're, you're missing what we're trying to do here. And some people have ideas. You're like, oh, I think there's something there. But mostly, although it's not fun to read, if you just basically list your complaints, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I wish there was more of this. Just I like that. I didn't like that. We start looking for consistency across different people. And 
usually like there's something like numbers, you know, where you have like this, you know, one to five, how fun was it? What do you think the best card was? What was it? And you have these sort of quantitative data. And I look at that and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's all good. And then I look at the comments and that's where I really find stuff, right? You're like, okay, we got 14 responses and four people talked about this thing as being annoying. This thing is annoying. And oh, it works perfectly. It's like four people took the time to play it and then complain about it. Probably another four didn't like it, but didn't think to complain about it, right? We've got a problem here. So um, yeah, this is not a chance to write the worst review of your life. I mean, some people like to do that. This game is unplayable dreck and how dare you call you're like, okay, you didn't like it. That's fine. We're going to make it better. It's not done. But just some people I think delight in writing a bad review of a game that's not done, uh, which which often doesn't help other than you might not be asked to play test if you're going out of your way to be rude right if you're just like i if you're like i didn't like it i did not have a fun time that's not being rude you're just telling your thing but if you're like whoever came up with this asinine decision to make this rule is a different approach that you sometimes see in play testing which is it's interesting it's interesting so we do playthroughs we don't do reviews i think we want we would like to um but looking at the game reviewers out there that that I watch and I do like, they put a lot of effort and work <laughs> into those, you know, which is a lot different than opening up a board game and getting most of the rules right and having fun. Yeah, most of the rules is great. Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of the rules. Um, so talk a little bit about when you started Restoration Games, kind of what led you to talk about, first of all, for everybody, what is Restoration Games? What is their sure. goal? And then kind of how, how did you evolve into that? Restoration Games is a company, we're about four or five years old, that takes old games that are out of print and puts them back in print. So we have on the shelf there right there is Stop Thief, which is a game from 1979. And Downforce is a redo of some Wolfgang Kramer games. We got Fireball Island down here, which was a 1986 game. So we basically reboot board games. And they might be obscure ones that you hadn't heard of, or they might be popular ones that you remember from your childhood. And we don't just reprint them. It's not a retro company where we're like, let's take the same graphics and the same you know pieces. We look at it and say, okay, if this game was coming out now, based on this idea, what would, what would we do to make it better? If someone pitched this game to us right now, we'd go, oh, we like it. And then we would do development on it. And sometimes like with Return to Dark Tower, it's almost a complete redesign. That one is a complete redesign with a few touchstones. And in the case of Downforce to Stop Thief, it was, no, let's get rid of the roll and move and add some cards, or let's take, this had five different versions. Let's take a little of column A, column B, and put them together. And then we, we put them out. And I got involved because Justin Jacobson, who's the president and founder, reached out to me. Um, at Hasbro, I had done a lot of work with risk and clue and brands or game of life and license and so i was well familiar with saying here's a game would it work as a card game would it work it's two player how do you take this game and you know make it contemporary what do you add what do you take away so i was like going home for me in a way so we are essentially partners in the company like uh, technically i'm the chief creative and he's the president but the roles are pretty fluid we just kind of run the company like how hard is it to get IP? I mean, is there a game where you're just like, I'm excited, I love this game, you know, and I want to rework it or something. Are there are there games out there that are just like, nope, you can't have this? Yeah, there are a few. And that's just part of it. There's some that like 
our art in print already or we were going to get it and stay signed with someone else or some that the rights are unknown and we can spend months or years trying to untangle. Um, that is mostly Justin. He's a lawyer. And so, and every game's a little different. Sometimes it's just, oh, hey, this is out of print. We go to the designer and we sign it just like a standard publisher. And sometimes, like with Stoff Thief, it was with the original designer. He is in his 80s. He was tickled that someone wanted to bring it back. He, he had made a lot of money in a lot of different ways. He's like, yours, just gave us the rights, right? Like, whoa, okay. I think we, we donated some money to a charity of his one-off and now, now we just own, own the game, right? And other games are, are more complicated because there's trademarks and patents and copyrights and a whole bunch of stuff that I'm only slightly aware of. But that's our, our secret uh, sauce is that Justin knows what he's doing. And is, and, and is willing to take the time to sort of do it. And I think a lot of people who would be trying to do what we do wouldn't quite have the resources to put together, we hope. Or like, what is the earliest game that you remember enjoying as a kid? Uncle Wiggly. See, no one started of that. It was a roll and move or maybe a draw and move board game. I think it had red cards. Um, I think it said, in retrospect, had some bad racial politics, right? Uh, like, I think it was set in the South, like the South, like Briar Rabbit, sort of, it, based on a book or something. I was like four in 1974, and just the thrill of like telling a little story. I think all the cards were written in rhyming couplets. Um, it had lose a turn and go back to start. And everything you would do if you were making a third grade board game right now. Um, but I remember really liking it. I also remember really liking Candyland at age like three. I played blue. And I remember the the dining room floor, the shag carpet. Remember, it was 1973 in a dining room uh, in the apartment we lived in at the time playing that. So for that game, was it um, for Uncle Wiggly? Was it the storytelling aspect of it? <laughs> uh, probably. I mean, I'm a huge role playing person. I think it was just it was an adventure. You were a person going through a world and stuff happened to you. And I wasn't playing on a path and I didn't care if you lost a turn and I probably didn't care about winning. I sort of just remember the feeling of what's going to happen next. And and that's the type of thing that I do carry into to a lot of my board game design is what's going to happen next. So what? So I know that um, we're currently in, uh, as people say, Pandemic Legacy Season 3 currently. Mm-hmm. It's the LARP version of it. Um, I I think that there was a there was announcement that the you know that the publisher is going we're going they're going to wait. Um, uh, it'll it'll be out this year. It'll be out this year. Uh, there was um, there were just production delays because of COVID and the complexity and stuff like that. I think at the original plan last year, so it would have been out by now. But then the world kind of blew up and. Um, to the best of my understanding, we I have a date that we're not talking about yet or a rough time frame and we should be talking about it real soon. So but it, it has nothing to do with that it uh the pandemic game's been selling very well. So it is absolutely nothing about like that it's a bad time for it. And in fact the game itself, although it has a pandemic uh as a backdrop, um is is a different game. Like season two was a survival post-apocalyptic game about it discovering the world and rebuilding the world while a pandemic is going on right so this has like that same sort of thing where it's a backdrop to a different story 
but we'll, we'll have it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I finished over a year ago. So we, our season two playthrough, we were doing so well. I mean, it was, it was uncanny how well we were doing, making all the right decisions, <laughs> were you everything. Uh, well, eh, <laughs> uh, up until December and then we just crashed and burned. <laughs> I, I am sorry. I actually never want that to happen, right? I want people to feel like they could crash and burn or they fail the first time, but then they succeed the second or it comes down to the last card. I know if you make it that you can't lose, then there's no tension and therefore some people have to lose, but I never want it to be. I want everyone to almost lose December. We consciously made a decision that made us lose. So it was, it was oh, one of those okay. things where we, we could right. have if we, if we didn't make a decision. Right. Well, you you learned something maybe that you can apply to real life. I don't know what it is, but. <laughs> Stop making decisions. Yeah. Yeah, just let like go of the steering wheel. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, it'll be fine. But I mean, yeah. it's one of those things. So as soon as, you know, we get back together, we're going we're gonna to play December over again. We're going to be like, hey, it didn't happen. <laughs> That's fine. I don't care. Just have fun. It's your game. So you brought up an interesting point in the fact that you want that tension that everybody feels like there's always, you're always on the precipice of potentially losing, but you still have a chance to win. Um, what are some of the other pieces or other key things that you want people to, I mean, it's kind of a weird question, but to emote during a game, how do you, you know what I mean? You talk about storytelling, having a journey, having people feel X. Are there other things that you really want people to kind of get out of a game, not just I've conquered X and done Y. I've collected so many things, um, you know. I think it's the type of things you'd expect people to get out of a, a movie or a book and everyone's a little different. Like you played Betrayal Legacy and you played that through. I wanted you to actually feel um, like the house had a story, like it was a main character and it evolved. I wanted you to laugh at some stuff, but I wanted you to actually wonder what the helm was all about and, and have this evolving story. That was a tricky one because as a horror story if you're writing a horror story and you go oh by the way in chapter one the main bad guy is a vampire you're like okay i know about vampires and what they do but if you never say what it is then you're like it's a scary thing it's a scary thing but i don't know what it is and therefore i didn't get it so you have to like give enough information over a period of time where you sort of figure out what the bad guy is but never quite so much that it becomes a stat block in a monster manual um so that was a real interesting i wanted to see if we could tell a story that had gaps in it and create a horror story out of that where people would, would fill it in. And then at the very end, I wanted people to feel like they had done something heroic, right? And actually walk away going, oh, wow, I actually feel, I don't know, moved. And moved is probably too strong a term for something like that because it always is a little bit comic booky. I mean, I did think like I'm going to try to scare people. It's very hard to scare people with event cards. Right. And, and like set up on your turn, main action, like you, it's very hard because you keep pulling people out back into the, me the mechanics and the stuff like that. But I wanted people to feel unnerved or queasy sometimes, either with a card or an event where you go, oh, did you just use the blood flame on yourself and then eat a doll? Like, what did you just, why did you kill the cat? Right. Like just a couple like, no moments. So I, I, I want people to have an emotion. The, oh yeah, the the marrow eating spoon. Yeah, yeah, that's a real thing. Um, as is the bloodletting flame. Um, I want people to feel like they they genuinely had a reaction to the game, an emotional reaction. I was sad. I was happy. I was energized. One of my favorite things, and I know a game is working, 
is if at any point when people are playing the game, they stand up. Right? People around a table and they're like, oh, oh, like last turn, last turn, and they're standing. Like you cannot be contained by your seat because you're too excited. I'm like, we did it. Two people were standing up during the last round. And I'm like, it's all it takes. It means that you are no longer playing a game. You are involved in an experience. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, I mean, playing playing Betrayal Legacy was one of the, it's just a, it was an amazing experience. Um, one of my best memories of it is, again, we get rules wrong all the time, is when we, uh, the audience pointed out that we were disrespecting the helm. Nice. And we were disrespecting the helm yes, we were. a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. before we realized, oh yeah, it's in the book. You're, you're not supposed <laughs> to disrespect the helm. It's not, a, it's not in the book. Mm-mm. It's on the back of the helm. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And that, that is, the, whoever wrote the back of the helm is an unreliable narrator. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a very, there's a good reason why it's not in the book. Nice. So we were so, so we were not doing it wrong. We were no. I mean, for people who haven't played, like you know, who's telling you to respect the helm, and why are they telling you to do it? Nice. For I us, it know. was the YouTube comments, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. And it does say it on the back, and it's one of some people's favorite things. Uh, someone named Ryan Miller used to work at Wizards of the Coast was a early design consultant on that, and he came up. Well, we knew that what we wanted was something that let you get rerolls once per game to mitigate some of the swinginess of the dice. But we wanted you to get this vague sense of what are you really paying for, for getting these rerolls, right? Like um, I'm going to, you know, someday I may call a favor in on you, but then like not really caring because in the moment you need this reroll. And we knew that most people, if not everyone would just use it. And occasionally some people are like, I'm not using it because I don't trust it, but I don't think I've ever heard of anyone not doing that. Um, and we were looking at different things and different systems. And then he just basically came back with the helm and almost all of the text that was on the back. He's like, I had an idea. And it was like the picture of the helm and all of that stuff on the back. I did go into a light edit. I looked up the year it comes into the game, like 1640, no, 1728 or something like that. And I found a book that was written then. And I took some of the language from that book and, and mixed it in to sort of give it a old timey feel. Um, and I was like, oh, we're doing theater. Right. Betrayal is basically an excuse to do dinner table theater. Of course it is, right? And then we started to put more theater moments in there. Um, and there's a couple things in Haunts that sort of try to address that, like the soundproof room. Mm-hmm. Right? You can only whisper when you're in this room. It, it doesn't need that. And when I played with my family, we would all whisper while we were in the room, and it was really, really creepy. And And so we just put a few more things in like that to cause players to do very light acting role-playing theatrical moments to try to get you involved with basically sitting around the fire and like i've got a story for you and like doing all the voices for it so yeah that came out of ryan's brilliant work on the helm and on the back says do not respect in this customary to have a champ when you take it out of the box and sort of these instructions were like that is genius Nice. I, I'm I'm sure the the process is similar in that in our game it was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't don't put a sticker on that, don't do it. And then one person does it and it's positive. We're like, rush everybody, every you know every game. The floodgates are open. Put something on there. Yep. Uh, group dynamics are something I do explore in my games a lot, right? Right. Where it's like, hey, you, this is probably a bad idea, but it's not against the rules, and you're like. Everyone will just sit there and, and, you know, someone will do it. Someone has to. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, just to shift gears a little bit, I see that you've done some um, game 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 developer lecturing at universities. So like I think uh, you yeah. lectured at MIT um, and then a couple other places. Um, how fundamental do you think that is for people to either take a course or have some understanding if they're looking to build their own game? I mean, do you think like, you know, how did you get into game design? How did you decide, like figure out all of these mechanics, you know, and again, I'm asking you to encapsulate like 20 years of experience, but like, sure. do you think now um, designers have a, have like a leg up with actually course and study and lectures and things? They do. Cause it's actually a thing now that can lead to a job. Although most people it's video game design. It's very few people come out and go to board game design. Um, I got a job at Hasbro in 1998 and I had a job that basically doesn't exist anymore, which is working at Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley and having a salary and basically doing the apprentice journeyman master. You know, I, I got paid no matter what. I got to work with people who had been doing it, who are older. I got to make mistakes. If my game did horribly, I got the same salary. If it did well, I got the same salary. I got to basically just make games and get better at it by learning what mistakes I made and having new ideas. Um, that is what school can do. It forces you to make something and remake it and remake it and come up with new ideas and be critiqued and do things. So basically you're taking that same journey of making bad things and then eventually making kind of bad things. And then you keep going until you can make pretty good things. Um, that said, there is a lot more people who know how to do that now. So yes, while there are courses you can take, if you're 23 and you graduate and you have a you know, degree in game design and you've made five games, there's a lot of people who are kind of in that place right now. And what the, um, what you end up not learning a lot of times in school is, well, what do you do next, right? Um, I did get an email from someone I'd given a lecture this January back when travel was a thing and down in South Carolina and just kind of reached out about like next steps for doing game design because they had done a couple games i'm like make some games show people that's pretty much it like you got a game and, you, and I, i'll say they i don't remember if it was a man or a woman or how they identified um they were like well i have some ideas but i just want to get a job and then you'll teach me how to make games i'm like no there's a lot of people who can shape play my game and i can play and go yeah this person knows what they're doing and I can read the rules and I can ask questions. A lot of times people are like, I have a game idea and I want to know what to do and how do I make a game? I'm like, just send me your rules. And you're like, I don't have rules. I just have an idea. I'm like, I can give you 10 ideas by the end of this email. Same thing for screenwriting. A lot of people say, I have this idea for a movie. I'm like, okay, great. Um, put it on paper. Yep, if it's not on paper, then. Yeah, write a script and and then send me the script and then I'll, I'll read it. Well, it's a great idea. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll pitch you the idea and then you write the script and we'll split it 50 50 because I gave you the idea. <laughs> <laughs> that takes a little money. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. speaking of which, what is that process for you now? Um, you know, so traditionally, you know, what's the traditional process and then what are you doing now as far as like you have an idea, then, then kind of what happens? Do you like, you know, typically you would write the rules, get, you know, get your cardboard cutouts kind of thing, have everybody play test it, then take it, you know, like, how does that sort of, how does that work for you now? Kind of the same way it's worked. I mean, the details change. We're going to use tabletop simulator instead of something else. If we're doing unmatch, another deck for unmatch, we're building off a brand. So we already know the rules, but you basically, you have an idea and then you try to make something playable as soon as possible. And everyone, myself included, will try to make the best thing before you test it. 
which doesn't matter because it's going to be bad. So sometimes people who work for me or people I work with, I find myself in this role where they say to me, like, they're trying to make it perfect. Let's just get it done and play it. Because once you play it, you'll see what your ideas are. And then what did Matt Leacock called the other day, the trough of despair, right? Where you're like, I spent all this time and it's going to be great. And then people play it and it's bad. And you go, what, what am I doing? I'm a hack. I don't know what I'm doing. But if you've been in that trough before, you're like, nope, just take notes. And then one thing I sometimes do is when I read the notes or I'm watching playtesting, and it's hard not to take it personally, right? Playtesting is basically like having a kid and then on you're, you're being a parent, you're doing all this stuff. And on the first day of kindergarten, you dress them up, you invite people over and they tell you everything they don't like about your kid. I don't like the outfit. I don't like the way they stand. Are you sure that's a good name for this person? Why are they like picking at their pants like that? And you're like, I made this thing, man. They're like, oh, this is a proud moment for me. Um, one thing that helps me is I sometimes pretend it's not my game. Right, like if a publisher came and said, hey, we have a game idea, here's some play test feedback, here's some notes, can you just look at it and give thoughts on what to do next? And then I have, I just sort of mentally play a little role-playing game like, oh, I'm going to evaluate this game that someone sent me and I read the notes and it's not personal then. Right, and I'll go, what are you talking about? That was the best part and you didn't like it. And I spent like an hour and I was all proud of that idea. You just go, oh, okay, well, that idea didn't work. And then you just try to make it better and you just keep doing that until it's not bad, um, which just sounds so, it just rewrites and rewrites and rewrites and it sounds so obvious and simple. Question is, how do you make it better? And that's the thing you learn by doing it again and again. Usually it's not by adding stuff. It's usually by taking away stuff. It's usually by figuring out what the priority of the game is. You're like, I have this great auction game and blah, blah. And then you realize that people didn't like the auction. They liked the scoring system. You're like, no, no, that's just a scoring system. The cool thing is the auction. And then you have to go, no, cool thing's the scoring system. Maybe the auction game is a different game. Maybe I minimize that. Maybe I've been eliminated. Even though it's where it got, got me the idea, it's no longer the thing the game is about. Um, and you have to resist the temptation to add rules exceptions. You know, this will solve it perfectly if we just add this one rule and then a token, and then you put the token here. And then you have to remember on your turn, if you have the token on your card, that you... Uh, re-roll twos and then it solves it and it does and no one's going to remember it and so what is an idea that solves it 90 percent or 95 percent is your perfect idea but everyone will play and everyone will understand and it works within the rules so and even then you'll get it wrong and then as you keep going eventually you'll get to something and you'll go it's still not working and the trick i've learned is keep saying what problem are we trying to solve okay we're trying to solve People aren't using enough items. Why aren't they using enough items? They cost too much. Why do they cost too much? Well, we had to make them cost more because people were buying too many items. So is it just in between? What if they didn't cost anything? What if you just get items? What if there are no items? You can just keep backing up. And at some point you've made a bad decision like three versions ago and you're patching that bad decision. And if you just keep patching that bad decision, it'll never come together. And you have to be willing to say, mm -mm, we made a bad decision somewhere in the past. And we are making every future design decision off of that. Let's go find the, the source of the problem and rip that out and try building it in a new way. I'm kind of even doing that on Return to Dark Tower right now. I'm like, this is a perfectly fine game. If we put it out right now, it'll be a little longer than I'd like. Works. Works fine. People understand it. People are enjoying it. I'm like, it's a couple fiddly bits I don't like. 
And we're like, yeah, but you need to do this because it balances that. And if you don't do this and players don't feel pressure, I'm like, I agree. It all works. But let's back up how we get to these decisions and see if we can do a simpler way. And we may not. But when I started saying that to the team yesterday, they're like, what? I'm like, cost us nothing to spend a week just trying different versions and playing around. We got the week. And at the end of the week, this is the best version. Then we know we did our homework. And if we stumble across something else, then we made it a little cleaner, a little faster. A little smoother. People are having some option paralysis, especially in the first game, right? And we can look at tutorials and we can look at things. I'm like, these are all patches if you're, you know, because people don't know what to do on their first turn. So how do we get people to hear the rules, sit down their first turn and go, I know the three options I can do right now because they're not seeing it as cleanly as we'd like. Again, people play a turn and they're like, oh, I kind of get it. And then they play a second turn. They're like, ah, yeah, okay, I get it, right? But I want to, I want to just, smooth that out and make that first experience like you you kick-started it and 15 months went by and you get it to your house and you open up and you put the batteries in the tower and the lights you're like i'm all excited and then i don't want you spending three hours trying to take your first turn mm-hmm. gotcha so what what are some of those tools that you actually use in that game design process is it all spreadsheet based uh i mean sometimes it's spreadsheet basically i try to write the rules and update the rules as i go because if a rule is hard to write it's going to be hard to write in the final rules, even if it's like, oh, this is a simple concept, but people aren't getting it. We can't articulate it. it that's just the way it's going to be right up until the end. You're, if you can't explain it at the beginning, you're not going to be able to explain it at the end. Um, so I write the rules as I go. I keep a bill of materials as I go. You don't want to go, okay, this $20 game, we finish it. It's 500 cards. Well, it's not a $20 game, is it? Oh, right. Well, it's too late to fix it because we spent six months working on it. So I keep a bill of materials. Um, I actually keep a master spreadsheet. One tab will be a bill of materials. Other tabs will be the cards or the tokens. We can use uh, Adobe InDesign to turn a cards, basically a data merge, to turn tabs into cards. Um, you can do that with tokens. There's usually a game board that's just roughly drawn out in Illustrator. Again, I try to work, what size is this game board? What size is the box going to be? Let's make the game board the right size. So later on, you don't find out the game board has to be 70% of the size. And now all the spaces don't fit. Like, it's just, you're, you're gonna I think a lot of people are like, I'm not worried about that. Right. I just want to make a game. Well, eventually game has to become a product and the publisher is going to come back to you and say, you need to cut these cards or cut this board or make this smaller. We have four fewer pages in the rule book. Um, and you're going to have to do it at some point. It's better to do it before you fell in love with the perfect idea rather than at the end, you know. So I try to work cleanly like that. Um, I think some publishers get surprised. I get on like a phone call with them or something and I'm like, you know, what's your retail for this and what box size do you want? They're like, oh, uh, how many languages are you going to be in? Are you going to be in German? Because that's 150% the length of English. So I'll make sure the card copy is small enough that you won't be translation won't be a problem and they're all like what i'm like i've been doing it 22 years and i'm a publisher like i again those are the tricks that i have learned that they're not going to learn in school which is like what happens when you go from a fun game to play out of scraps of paper and you know little pennies and things like that to something on a shelf is something that i'm thinking about the the whole time and i try not to let it affect early game decision i tend to work with people and i'm like we're in early design. Anything goes. It can have electronics. It can have batteries. It can cost a million dollars. Let's just talk about it. But pretty quickly after that first play test, we're like, okay, 
let's get serious now. Let's add up our cards. There's a lot of cards. What are, why do we have so many cards? Is there a better way to do this? So basically now you've become Hasbro and you mm -hmm. are now officially compromising with yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying is I've learned like, oh yeah, no, there was a point here. What at Hasbro, in order to the first checkpoint to get a game approved is you um, need uh, basically a, a pitch and maybe a rough prototype that you're going to walk people. It's going to play something like this. They're not going to play it. You're going to bring it out. You're going to talk to a, a room in a theater of like 30 executives and what they're doing is half listening and they're more looking at the cost sheet you have. And they're like, why do you think you're really going to sell this? Is this a big enough advertising load? You're not at enough profitability. You need, And you're not going to actually even be able to put it down on the table unless you're at a certain profit margin. And marketing has a marketing plan with it. And they're buying off on, hey, before we spend some real money here, uh, we want to make sure that at the end we're going to make money. And if you don't have like a rough plan on how to do that, then go get a rough plan because you're just going to be wasting everyone's time and money for something we're not going to put out. And I would, I would always try to cheat it. I know I'm a couple points below profit where I'm supposed to be right now, but I think the forecast is low and I think we can hit the total bottom line numbers like that. It doesn't work that way. I'm like, Anyway, so I mean, I've heard some great advice in there. Um, I've heard some universal advice in there, um, things that apply to other fields than just game design. Um, Thomas, did you have any final questions? Uh, no, 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 none <laughs> that you can uh, answer on camera right now. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm just dying for a pandemic legacy. That's it. Oh yeah, no, I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm dying to talk about it. Like I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, no, when, when it, when it happens, I'll be everywhere. Talking about, you know, talking about it. It's coming. But yeah. So again, it was fantastic meeting you in person. Um, you know, again, I if I didn't let it show, Thomas and I are very big fans. Um, we oh. enjoy your games very much. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you playing Betrayal Legacy. One of the things about um being a game designer is you're often removed from the final experience, right? You'll meet people and they'll say, oh, I played your game. I really liked it. That's great. I love it. If you see me at a convention and you liked one of my games and you have a particular anecdote, would love to hear it unless I'm late for a meeting. Um, but I rarely see people playing a finished game, right? And it was hard not to watch it and think like playtesting, like, mm, they got that rule wrong. Maybe I should make it. And I'm like, no, it's done. It's done. Like it is out there and I can't change it. And I would just put it on to this other monitor here and I would work on other things and kind of listen to it. And then I'd be like, that was an interesting moment. Right. And go from there. So thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us for this chat. Thanks for having me. Well, that was our interview with Rob Davio and Davio. <laughs> That was, that was correct. It was close. It was, border, it was borderline on mispronunciation. Um, the one thing that I really was just fascinated with in talking to him was just the breadth of his experience. Um, you know, it's the fact that he's been doing it forever. So therefore, well. For a long time. Yeah, for a while. Yeah. Exactly. He's a, uh, a pillar of the industry, mm -hmm. a uh, titan, a. Um, but usually it's very pedestal like where it's like oh this is you know this is somebody at the top tier right. where i find it very fascinating to start to pick apart what they've done through their career and to find some of the nuances and interesting things that they've learned along the way that kind of build them up into being the pillar of right. you know the community or like the top tier of what it is that they do and so i found that really fascinating is the just the learnings that he's had along the way mm -hmm. and how he sort of cultivated that into um 
everything that he does today. Yeah, so. and I like how you called out that, you know, he was, he, at Hasbro, he worked for the man, and now Restoration <laughs> Games, he is the man. That was very... Well, that is kind of the learnings, is the well, fact yeah. that, you know, when I was younger, I looked at my career as what are the jobs that I need to do in order to do the thing that I want to do? So what are the building blocks that when I work for a bank or for, right. and, you know, for tech companies or wherever it was that I was working, what are the actual jo job skill sets that I can learn from this company in order to go out and do my own thing? And so I feel that based on those experiences, I can then have the confidence right. to say, I can do this on my own, as opposed to being like, I'm going to try this on my own and flounder through every single step of the process because I right. don't know what I'm doing where, you know, right. again, he went from Hasbro to learning a lot of the fundamentals and now, um, you know, uh, yeah. institutes them consistently of being his own a of moving to a freelance world mm -hmm. and then moving to uh you know publisher world and then uh you know and still doing game design I, I like one thing that was pointed out you actually mentioned this after the interview was um how he can he when he talks to a publisher as a game designer yep. he brings all of that knowledge mm -hmm. of being a publisher to that, right? So he mm -hmm. knows about different languages and how much extra mm -hmm. um, German is to put on a card. Yep. So if you are doing a, you know, different foreign language versions, you need X amount of space or font or, mm -hmm. or word count. And that just comes from experience. So those yeah. are things that you know you don't know until you actually do them and then know them, um, which I find which I find fascinating. And that's kind of you know why we talk to all of these people is to sort of like crack their heads open and find out all those little bits of nuances that you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if it's breaking news or not, but I was very happy to hear, I don't know if he said this on camera or if it was off camera, but Pandemic you, Legacy season three this year. You kept asking him. I don't I, know. I don't know either because it was just and continual. He's like, he's like yeah, the there's, there's no mystery. It's There was some manufacturing delays. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. It's not a secret. He's like, I can't tell you when. I'm like, oh, okay. But this year, <laughs> this year. This calendar year. 2020. So you're wow. not, in 2020, you're going to get two pandemics, people. Whoa. Two pandemics. On that bombshell, we are going to wrap up episode 11 of the Untitled Show podcast. Podcast. <gasps>